Hi everyone, this is Austin welcoming you to the LL Research Podcast in the Now, Episode 4. LL Research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community, and towards this end has two websites the archive website llresearch.org and the community website bringforth.org. During each episode, those of us here at LL Research form a panel to consider questions from spiritual seekers. Our panel consists of Jim McCarty, husband to the late Carla Ruckert, scribe for the Raw Contact, and president of LL Research, along with Gary Bean and myself, who are working hard to keep the mission of LL Research alive and well, each of us a devoted seeker and student of the Law of One. We will be discussing questions that are sent to us from spiritual seekers around the globe. Our replies to these questions are not final and authoritative. Instead, they are generally subjective interpretations stemming from our own studies and life experiences. We intend this podcast to be a platform of discussion as we consider questions that often challenge us to articulate our own perspective. We always ask each who listens to exercise their own discernment and listen for their own resonance in determining what is true for them. If you would like to submit a question for this show, please do so. Our humble podcast relies on your questions. To do so, you may either send an email to contact at llresearch.org or go to www.llresearch.org slash podcast for further instructions. Again, I'm Austin, and we are embarking on a new episode of LL Research's weekly podcast, In the Now. Jim and Gary, are you with us and ready to go? I am here, ready to go. I am indeed. Alrighty, we can jump straight into our first question, which comes from an anonymous seeker via email. Anonymous asks, uh, Ra says that all encounters are of a nature of self with self, and that they all can't be less than very, very close. So my question is, do you think this includes encounters with inanimate objects as well? I believe so, since all is one, that includes inanimate objects, so we can assume that we're looking at the creator, or ourself, or another self, no matter what we're doing. I would say definitely not. Inanimate <laughs> objects are not part of the creator, I think. Ra forgot to mention that. Um, obviously, I think that they are. Um, I, I think that in true self-realization, um, one sees the self everywhere. Uh, those seeming human eyes looking at, for instance, say, a pencil, um, sees that contained within the pencil is the infinite. That pencil is a manifestation, a form that arises out of the formless and unmanifest. That pencil is ultimately made of light, which came from love using free will, which has its ground in the same boundless awareness that is looking out through your eyes. So behind the pencil and behind your eyes is the same infinite intelligence, the exact same infinite awareness. But on the level of form, you're interacting with something that's different from you, a different seeming level of self. So you can't um, quite blame the salt shaker for international politics, and you can't quite have a fruitful conversation with a rock, though you can certainly nevertheless talk to it. Its range of responses, however, will be quite limited. Chances are it will not affirm your opinion, but, and herein lies the secret, neither will it deny your opinion. So you could make a statement out loud and then turn to the rock and say, Rock, do not say or do anything if you think what I have just said is right. Thus you have confirmed the rightness of your own position. (laughs) 
spiritual enlightenment doesn't eliminate or erase boundaries. The sage still sees the surface differences between herself and the frog. Spiritual enlightenment just makes all the boundaries transparent to the one. Very good. Austin, what do you think? I, I obviously agree that uh, all things are the creator. Um, it would be hard to argue from the perspective of the law of one that inanimate objects would not be part of the creator. But we can look at it from a few different perspectives, I think. Ra talks about minerals or uh, places being able to gain third density consciousness, which prior to gaining that consciousness, I would think that is a form of inanimate object. And I don't fully really understand how a rock or a place can be third density, but um, if we take Ra's words to be true, then uh, it can apparently happen. Um, but also, a good thing to look at is the importance of the inanimate objects that were part of the raw contact and the appurtenances. 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 I had to learn that one, yeah. Okay. Uh, when... Obviously, those objects uh, played a big part in how the raw contact played out, and they were a big part of the consciousness of the group as they uh, embarked on the journey of the raw contact. And there was also a part of the raw contact uh, where, Jim, I think you built a table to hold those right, objects. Right. And uh, Don asked if the table was good, and Ra said, It sings with joy. The pine vibrates in praise. Much investment of this working in wood has been done. And so a table, which is a seemingly inanimate object, can apparently sing with joy in a way that we might not be able to see, obviously, from third density, but uh, Ra could see it from their perspective. And in another sense, I think Gary was kind of touching on this one, uh, is that inanimate objects can serve to reflect our own nature back to us. We can project our anger or our joy onto an inanimate object, and it can become the target of our ire or our sentimental natures. Especially in an environment where we're lacking that reflection from people, we might uh, tend to start talking to objects a bit more and getting a little more angry at objects when we mess up and things like that. And so, in essence, I think, obviously, all is the creator. There's no exception. A full understanding of this is probably beyond our full grasp, but I do think that as we become more balanced and polarized towards service to others, we start to view our interactions with inanimate objects in more sacramental ways and realize this innate creatorness within them. And I will wrap mine up with one of my favorite quotes from a writer, a Buddhist writer, named uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, I think I said that right, who uh, once wrote about this by saying, Feelings, whether of compassion or irritation, should be welcomed, recognized, and treated on an absolutely equal basis. Because both are ourselves. The tangerine I am eating is me. The mustard greens I am planting are me. I plant with all my heart and mind. I clean this teapot with the kind of attention I would give... Sorry... I clean this teapot with the kind of attention I would have were I giving the baby Buddha or Jesus a bath. Nothing should be treated more carefully than anything else. And mindfulness, compassion, irritation, mustard green plants, and teapot are all sacred. And that is a view that I share. Indeed. It's a great ideal. 
It is. It's not always, I don't think it's practical to go throughout our busy lives in third density, really treating every inanimate object we come upon as the baby Jesus. But uh, it is an ideal that I think we can strive for and uh, live our lives more and more in that sacramental way. Well said. Um, I had a, just a couple of raw quotes I wanted to contribute quickly without further commentary from myself. I'm having difficulty locating, locating one. But um, there are a couple instances where uh, Ra talks about the aliveness of all of creation. Um, when discussing the pyramids in session 2.4, Ra says that the stones are alive, the stones that were used to build the pyramids. And um, in 29.8, uh, the questioner says, then every entity that exists would be some type of sub or sub-sub-logos. Is this correct? And Ra responds that this is correct down to the limits of any observation, for the entire creation is alive. And there's a third quote where I thought Ra said that to begin to open up to infinity um, is to understand the aliveness of all things. But um, apparently that's not a key word. I'm misremembering it. But I just wanted to add that. Good, good quotes. Any more thoughts on our question from Anonymous before we move on to the next one? Not for me. Nor I. Alrighty. Our next one comes from user Gemini Wolf via Bringforth. And Gemini writes, Can you tell us a little bit about karma? And if we do a few bad deeds in our life, will the karma get us caught up in requiring repeating third density? Even if we're not in our right mind when we do these things, must every unbalanced action be balanced through karma in another life? Uh, yeah, but it's not just bad things. Everything that we do needs to be balanced. For example, when Carla was a child, she apparently learned how to give without expectation of return. So later on in her life, it was necessary for her to learn to receive the love offerings of others in order to balance that out. And both of those we would consider to be quite positive actions. So I think we need to remember that we are 360-degree beings. We are everything. We are the Creator. So when we express portions of the Creator, we also at some point need to be able to express the opposite portions so that we can be balanced in our allowing of the intelligent energy to come through us, unblocked. What do you think about that, Gary? Karma has always been a really tricky topic for me. I do not really fully understand it. Um, this question, which I'm really grateful for, gave me an opportunity to um, really dive in and examine and explore it. Uh, part of my answer is long form, and it coincides with Jim's to an extent, but I, I'm not sure that from my perspective, um, the balancing that Jim describes, I'm not sure if I would call that karmic because Ra links the uh, the concept of forgiveness to the end of karma. So I tend to see karma as some sort of blockage or disharmony that happens prior to the energy reaching the heart chakra, but I could be completely mistaken in my perspective. Um, so one idea that helps illuminate karma somewhat, at least for me, is the notion of motion. Um, that karma is a sort of motion. We set energies into motion through our thoughts and our feelings, but um, especially, and I think this is Ra's emphasis, through our deeds. Uh, quest the questioner asks, 
would you define karma in 34.4? And Ra says, our understanding of karma is that which may be called inertia. Those actions which are put into motion will continue using the ways of balancing, which does sound pretty neutral here and closer to Jim's understanding, um, until such time as the controlling or higher principle, which you may liken unto your breaking or stopping, is invoked. This stoppage of the inertia of action may be called forgiveness. These two concepts are inseparable. So, um, what is forgiveness then? Um, not that I really understand this either, but it seems to be a, a release. It's a statement that I am not the disharmonious slash negative energy. I no longer identify with that because I am greater, but I have those energies within me. However, I will not blindly, unconsciously carry out the negative energy any longer. I release myself and the other from the pattern. I transcend the disharmonious energy and lift the perspective into the heart where everything is embraced and accepted and loved as being part of the creator, part of the self. So then the motion is ended because the continuation of the motion relied upon your continued identification with and energizing of those patterns. So in forgiveness, we release this identification, we stop energizing, and we move more closely to accepting what is. So what causes karma? Um, in 12.29, Ross says, An entity which acts in a consciously unloving manner in action with others, with other beings, can become karmically involved. So looking at Ross' statement, there isn't, uh, as Jim was saying, there isn't a good-bad dichotomy to this. Uh, good and bad are meaningful terms in our plane of, of existence, but there are human judgments that are superimposed on the actual nature of Catalyst, I think. Um, analyzing the situation in terms of love, um, if we act, or rather, if we are acting unlovingly, it necessarily means we have a blockage or imbalance somewhere in the energy system, so far as I understand. Uh, likely the first three chakras, and consequently the heart chakra. So that blockage is... Another way of saying we are misapprehending the love and the light of the one infinite creator. We are misapprehending who we really are. So um, as a result, we've set various processes in motion, processes that may have had their gestation long ago and may be operating on a largely unconscious basis. Uh, those processes will, as Ra indicates, continue to offer us catalysts in order to work on these blockages and imbalances until such time that we wake up just a little bit more from the dream of the illusion, become just a little bit more conscious, and realize who we actually really are. We then begin to dissipate the resistance, the intolerance, the hate, the desire to harm, etc., through the function of forgiveness. Uh, as Ra says, that which is not needed falls away. And when the material is forgiven, it is likely no longer needed if the forgiveness is true and it is therefore no longer in motion because we are not energizing it. <laughs> that feels um, a bit convoluted to me, but I turn over the mic to you, Austin. <laughs> I think that was a great answer, much more in-depth than I could have given it. Um, like you were saying, I think... As far as the type of karma Gemini Wolf is talking about, uh, the key is forgiveness. And I think that uh, we there's some cultural baggage around the idea of karma because typically when people talk about karma outside of the context of the Law of One, it's viewed as sort of a punishment. 
um, this sort of what goes around comes around thing. And that if you do something bad, the universe will punish you for doing that bad thing. And it could probably seem that way in a lot of, in a certain context, especially for somebody who is not actively seeking to uh, utilize their experiences. But it is, um, like Jim and Gary are saying, it's more of a balancing thing where... Uh, when you do something and then that action comes back around if it's a, a consciously unloving thing you're instead of being punished given a chance to uh, forgive yourself for doing that thing by having it then uh, reflected back to you in a certain way and there is part of it that I feel is a little unfair and that this supposedly can carry out throughout lifetimes, and we can't remember our past lifetimes. So we might incarnate without knowledge of past lives, without knowledge of any past wrongdoing that we've done, and have bad things happen to us, and from our perspective it just seems unfair. But uh, the key still in that case is just forgiveness. And if you're able to utilize these experiences and uh, learn to love the other self that is doing these things to you, then you ultimately, uh, that goes to basically the heart of your soul in forgiving yourself for any sort of uh, wrongdoings that may have been done in other lifetimes. And even if that isn't a valid concept, um, learning to love another self even if they are doing wrongfully to you, not saying that you should allow bad things to happen to you, but uh, you can still act from a place of love when responding to those bad things. Uh, I think that is still the lesson to learn here in Third Density, whether or not you are rectifying some sort of past uh, wrongdoing in your own uh, cycle. So I think a big key is uh, not seeing it as punishment, but just as all other things we view as catalyst for growth and an opportunity to learn more about ourselves and our true nature. There's one part of Gemini Wolf's question that I think is really hard to talk about, and I don't know if any of us have any good things to say about it, but he says, uh, even when we do things when we are not in our right mind... Um, if we perhaps have some sort of a mental illness which compels us to uh, do something bad, uh, does that carry a karmic charge? I think that's a tough one. Yeah, I have no clear definitive answer on where responsibility lies. If an entity is absolved, absolve implies some external force, but if an entity no longer has responsibility... I mean, ultimately, the self... You know, what might shed some light on your on the question, Austin, is that uh, Ra talks about children being responsible at some point in their development. And, um, you know, their conscious minds might not be as aware as the adult mind and might not have all the information at hand, but nevertheless, they, as children, are still responsible. They may make a decision as a child that has long-term effects for their spiritual evolution. So maybe uh, likewise with somebody who is mentally ill, even on a, if on a conscious level they seem to lack that faculty, the decisions and choices they make may still uh, carry some karmic weight, as it were. But I don't know. I only speculate. 
When uh, Carla and I were reading in the field of uh, Life Between Lives with uh, Dr. Newton and Dr. Weiss, and especially Rob Schwartz on the topic of uh, mental illness, it always seemed like there was a problem that came from a previous life that was being worked through by the mental illness that was chosen in this life. And the mental illness was chosen because it gave the person an opportunity to, to balance something from a previous incarnation. And it might have been that they were... Um, attempting to influence somebody in a previous incarnation in a way that caused them uh, difficulty, that maybe uh, put stress on their mind in a certain way that this person now felt they needed to balance by experiencing the same type of a situation in this life so that they could know what it was that they, how it was they influenced the person in a previous incarnation. The, the point here being is that there's always a reason for everything that we experience, even though we can't see it right away. And it usually goes back to another life. Interesting. Thank you, Jim. That helps clear things up a little bit. And my own thoughts about that would be um, in self-judgment. If somebody is experiencing mental illness and they act in ways that are not indicative of their desired behavior or their normal behavior, then uh, karma is not necessarily an external force. It's something that we choose in order to promote our own balance. And so if you judge yourself harshly for an action that you do while you are in an imbalanced or unstable mental state, then it probably is something that you will have to work on until you're able to forgive yourself or if somebody else is experiencing mental illness, forgive them. And um, that will still uh, be a stoppage of the wheel of karma. So if you are... Uh, feeling judgmental towards yourself or others for things that are done within a mentally ill state, I'd say the general uh, way that karma works is probably still the same. Um, I'm not sure what the clinical or orthodox definition of mental illness would be, uh, but I can see that in a scaled-down way, we all kind of have mental illnesses as it were, in that we have these unconscious energies within us that compel us to do, or seem at least, to compel us to act in ways that don't seem compatible with our vision of ourselves or our higher understanding of ourselves. Perhaps in the, the quote-unquote mentally ill person, um, it has become so strong and so overwhelming that they, have, they feel like they've lost control to an extent. They're no longer behind the wheel. But I think we're all inundated by energies that have us act out in ways that uh, we're not, in retrospect, so proud of. Mm -hmm. uh, Austin, you mentioned um, earlier, too, about how you may do something in a past life and then have it be playing out in this life. Like, you may have done something to somebody and that's uh, another person in the next life is doing that unto you. And it may not be so literal, like um, you punch somebody in a past life, so, you know, now they or somebody else is punching you. But anyways, you're experiencing a similar dynamic or gist, but instead of on the being on the giving end, you're on the receiving end of that. And, um, like, that process of forgiving forgiveness it came to my mind while listening to you like how deep and real and tough that is i mean you can say in your mind that 
I see the creator in the thief. I um, uh, forgive the thief, which again does not mean condoning behavior or that we should not have a social justice system. But um, I forgive the thief in your mind. But then to be the victim of uh, a crime like thievery and to have some kind of interaction on some level with the perpetrator and then to really... Uh, say, I see the creator in this person. Um, I know they are not just their outer behavior, that they are me, actually, and I am them, and we are one, and I would love this person, regardless of their bad outer behavior. I think like that carries so much um, weight to actually undergo an experience, and then bring love into that situation. It's not an easy thing. It's uh... <laughs> The reward is probably commensurate with the uh, difficulty in reaching that state of love. Yeah, it's a really good way to put it. Alrighty. Uh, we've got time for one more juicy question. Any more quick thoughts on Gemini Wolf's question? Uh, quickly, I wanted to add, and I won't read the whole quote, but in 13... I'm sorry. 34.5 and 17.20 are... Um, contain some more information on karma and its linkage to forgiveness for anybody that wants to explore further. Cool. Thank you. Alrighty. Our next question comes from another user on Bring Forth, Van Aldeo Saldo. And Van Aldeo Saldo writes, Pertaining to harvest and polarity, in the event of one having a genuine want to love others due to their desire of treating others like themselves, does it neutralize, in a sense, my own polarizing towards service to others if this desire to be of service to others is selfishly pursued to graduate faster? Or does it literally polarize me towards service to self? Am I defeating my own intent to graduate through service to others by selfishly being of service to others, by wanting to treat others the way that I want to be treated, because I actually want to be treated that way and treat others that way? <laughs> Love your name, Van Alio Saldo. Um, I see the phrase, genuinely want to serve others, and then the phrase, selfishly pursued to graduate faster. I don't think there's any polarization going on at all. In that case, I think it's a depolarizing to have mixture of emotions or mixture of intentions. And I think probably this is a very positive person who's concerned about getting something back for being of service to others. And that's just, you know, the way things work. Um, when you serve others, you are also serving yourself because we're all one. So maybe a little more meditation as to his um, motivation for being of service, or the clarification, uh, simply in his own mind, might be helpful. I think that um, the desire to know the truth, to know who you really are, to serve the Creator through others, um, I think those desires are the deeper guiding, motivating factors on the positively oriented path. Uh, however, I'm not so sure that... Um, I agree completely with Jim regarding the mixed emotions and the need to bring some clarity um, to the motivations through especially meditation. But I'm not so sure that it's... Um, that wanting to do good in order to harvest 
what the net effect of that is. Uh, for instance, in 82.28, in Book 4, when Ra's investigating the prevail situation in the universe, and um, it comes about that prior to the veil, entities weren't particularly motivated to do work in consciousness. There was content, there was ease, there was total security, there was total knowledge, um, that all was one. And then the Logos apparently experimentally invented the veil to help um, the process along. And in 82.28, Don is asking um, along those lines, and Ra says, uh, let us continue the metaphor of the schooling, but consider the scholar as being an entity in your younger years of the schooling process. The entity is fed, clothed, and protected, regardless of whether or not the schoolwork is accomplished. Therefore, the entity does not do the homework, but rather enjoys playtime, mealtime, and vacation. It is not until there is a reason to wish to excel that most entities will attempt to excel. Um, then Alio Saldo's feeling about the need to graduate might be a manifestation of that desire to excel, to achieve the next grade. Um, ultimately, again, I think that the deeper motivating principles are in alignment with what uh, Jim was saying and, and what I said, that um, the desire to serve others for the sake of serving others is is the greater motivator. And uh, uh, finally, to conclude my answer, he asked regarding uh, service to self, whether that desire in his mind would lead to service to self. And I think um, it definitely <laughs> does not polarize you in that direction. If you start attempting to manipulate, control, and eventually enslave others for your own benefit in order to graduate, then you may, to, may need a good, thorough polarity check. But... Um, as long as you're not doing that, I don't see it being negatively polarizing, per se. Austin? I have just a very slightly different view on his question. And I think his question's kind of confusing because I see two parts. One, treating others the way that you want to be treated because you want to be treated that way. And two, treating others a certain way because you want to be harvested which I kind of see as two different things. The first one, I think, it might not be um, where a polarizing, truly polarizing entity would be operating from, but I think it is steps in the right direction because within that mindset is a realization of a connection between others and yourself, which is more than a lot of people can say. A lot of people say they they would only care about themselves and don't really care what happens to other people and they don't really see the connection between the two and even if you are um, following some sort of ideal or uh, some kind of scripture in acting a certain way because that's what a scripture says uh, there might be some um, disingenuous aspects of that mentality but at the same time you are still following that ideal for a reason i think that you realize there's probably some truth to it and that you realize that uh there's a connection between other people's experiences and your experience and you are following that connection but i don't think that that is the way that a balanced entity would work i think that that is probably a s initial step along the path um I think that 
it's not unconditional love to be acting like that. And unconditional love is the ideal that we're really looking at here. And uh, I don't say this from a standpoint of being within unconditional love myself, because how many of us can really say that uh, we never put conditions on our love? And in a lot of ways, complete unconditional love seems kind of nonsensical in an environment like Earth. I've, uh, I've never really liked the percentage aspect of the polarization that's talked about in the raw material, because I think it's misused and misunderstood in a lot of ways. But uh, they did give a percentage of 51% required to harvest, which 49% from a certain point of view seems like a lot of leeway as far as not having complete unconditional love goes. Um, but let's look more at uh, the ideal of polarization and balance. And let's say that we're working from a point of treating others as we wish to be treated because that's what we want for ourselves. Our catalyst at that point won't suddenly stop. We'll continue to be met with challenges in our lives. If utilized, uh, they will deliver us and put us on a clear path to the open heart of unconditional love. So if you have reached that point by utilizing Catalyst, and then you continue to utilize Catalyst from that standpoint, those conditions might start clearing away, and you might uh, start being delivered to this more unconditional love, where you treat others uh, with love because that is what flows through you naturally, instead of because that's what you want to be treated like yourself. Um... I think that the idea of polarization causes a lot of anxiety in some seekers that follow the law of one. Because I see it in Van Alio Saldo's question, and I see it in a lot of discussion about polarization. People are worried about making the cut, and uh, they feel like polarizing is something they should be actively doing in order to uh, escape third density or reach some sort of idealized fourth density. But I, I feel like that is kind of a harmful view of polarization. I think that uh, polarization is more useful as a concept, sort of like a map that shows the path that you're on. It shows you the destination of the path that you decide to walk. But the path is walked one step at a time, and each uh, catalyst that you utilize successfully is another step along that path. And by walking that path, you polarize. But it's not done with the intent to polarize. It is just done moment to moment, uh, experiencing catalyst and interpreting catalyst in a positive sense. And then the result is polarization. It's not something you say, well, I'm going to go ahead and polarize and then uh, meet everything in life with this goal of reaching this grade of 51% and like sort of adding brownie points to your uh, tally. Um, I think it's much more useful to just approach life in the moment and seek love in the moment. And uh, you can just forget about polarization completely. As long as you are seeking love in the moment, then I think that is the ultimate lesson. And polarization is just sort of a, a concept to attach to that to help you understand it more. But it's not something that you necessarily need to be seeking. And uh, that's about all I have to say about Ben Aliosaldo's question. Good job. So, does anybody have any more thoughts on uh, Van Aldeo Saldo's question there? No, I think I'm done on that one. Thank you. That was a good question, Van. Yeah, Are you done? Uh, me as well, thanks. Okay, cool. Alrighty, and I think we're about at our time now. So, any final thoughts for our listeners? Well, I just want to thank everybody once again for sending in questions. We love your questions, and we thank you all for being part of the show. We love you all, and hope you have a great day. 
Thank you, Jim. You've been listening to LL Research's weekly podcast, In the Now. If you've enjoyed the show, please visit our websites, llresearch.org and bringforth.org. Thanks so much for listening, and a special thank you to those of you who submitted questions. If you'd like to submit us a question, please read the instructions on our page at www.llresearch.org slash podcast. New episodes are published to the archive website every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern. 